sinister myth. How stories we tell perpetuate violence. This podcast challenges cultural mythologies about sexuality in the West, because so often they encourage, perpetuate, or foster violences against women and minorities. It is supported by an Ohio State Affordable Learning Exchange grant and is created by Zoe Brigley-Thompson and Brendan Walsh. Sinister Myth is produced by Alex Amater, Deborah Eschen, Paul Kotheimer, and Mackenzie Warren. All opinions expressed are solely those of Sinister Myth producers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of The Ohio State University. For this month's interview, our guest is Malia Lee Womack, who is currently doing fieldwork in Puerto Rico. And she talks to us about U.S. human rights abuses in Puerto Rico, including the sterilization of Puerto Rican women. Hello, my name is Malia Lee Womack. I'm currently a PhD candidate at Ohio State University. And my dissertation focuses on how to transform the international human rights system to make global human rights norms more inclusive of Puerto Rican needs. What really brought me to do this work, given that I am not Puerto Rican, and just looking back into the history of my education and also my um, care for making this world a better place, I was raised in a place in California that is near the Mexico border. And I lived in a fairly privileged community. And in this community, we had a lot of Latino immigrants and especially immigrants from Mexico. And there's an incredible amount of discrimination there against them. So I became quite passionate about really addressing the needs of of people from Latin America in relation to the United States. And then I pursued an educational path, earning a gender studies, bachelor's with a minor in global poverty at UC Berkeley. Thereafter, I earned a human rights degree and a master's degree at Columbia University, which then brought me to Ohio State, where I pursued a Latin American studies master's degree simultaneously with my PhD, which is in women's gender and sexuality studies. And throughout this history of my education and also my initial interest thinking about the U.S. relationship to Latin America, I became very, very passionate about researching Puerto Rico specifically because we have a very unique history in the U.S. with Puerto Rico, considering how in 1898, the United States colonized Puerto Rico. And prior to that, Puerto Rico was colonized by the Spanish. So Puerto Rico is the oldest existing colony in the world with over 500 years of colonialism in the island. So I was just quite um, taken aback that we have currently colonies of the United States. And this is just something that I really wanted to explore more, especially recognizing the extensive amount of transnational economic and social and cultural exploitation that the U.S. has done in nations throughout Latin America and the Caribbean. Thank you. And you're in Puerto Rico at the moment doing field work. I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about the current situation of Puerto Rico in relation to the U.S. We have some people who are listening from outside of the United States who might need to be filled in on that just so that they understand the situation properly. 
Definitely. And I would even argue further that there are many people inside the United States that right. still <laughs> lead in on that. So we have to look at the history leading up to the contemporary situation. As I've noted, in 1898, the U.S. colonized Puerto Rico, which was during the Spanish-American War. And basically what happened is during this initial process, the U.S. implemented a military dictatorship into the island, installed governors that basically would act as something similar to the president of the United States. That's what the governor would be here. Right. However, Puerto Rico has its own government system that is very much under the control of the United States in a way that the government here cannot really do anything that would be outside of what the U.S. deems its own interest, right? They can veto mm -hmm. what is occurring on in here. So basically, we had, you know, a U.S. governor in Puerto Rico. Eventually, Puerto Ricans were able to mobilize to have a Puerto Rican governor. And then now we will continuously have Puerto Rican governors here. So basically throughout this process, it's very, very evident that there has been a lack of self-determination of Puerto Rico as a nation. And this is something that is very critical when looking at human rights throughout the world, that nations really need to have the right to determine their internal operations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some of these things that are leading up into contemporary days and then also have been existing historically is, for example, Puerto Rico cannot import anything unless it's going through the United States. Mm -hmm. Also, historically, Puerto Rico, when um, they were able to gain a little more control over their, their insular government, they tried to implement a constitution that focused on human rights, but they were required by the United States to submit this constitution to the United States for approval. And the U.S. disapproved of it because it focused too heavily on human rights. Similarly, the U.S. can continue to veto any legislation or any policies that the U.S. deems that is not in its own interest in the United States. So you have all of this existing where today Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. However, they have a, their own government structure, but the government structure is very much really under the thumb of the United States because they cannot operate in a way that is autonomous, that is focused on their own self-determination. It's rather the U.S. has to be in approval of the operations currently. So um, it's a very troublesome situation. And, you know, people are highly critical in Puerto Rico and, and some in the U.S. about this colonial relationship. We have a contemporary colonial relationship existing to the present day. Mm, thank you. It sounds like a very unfair way of setting up the government in a way there. And um, I know that your scholarship um, around human rights and a lot of the writing that's going on in relation to Puerto Rico has revealed that there are definitely or there have been human rights abuses of Puerto Ricans by American institutions. And I know that you've been working particularly at looking at practices like surveillance, persecution and imprisonment. And I wondered if it'd be worth going into detail about that and explaining to us what exactly has been going on there. Definitely. 
And before I do that, I would really like to point out that in the United Nations system, which is the producer of global human rights norms, basically all nation states are able to become a member to the United Nations. And in this process, nation states will get together and co-construct human rights treaties that are then specified as global human rights norms. In this current system, because Puerto Rico is a U.S. colony, it is not able to equally participate as a member in the United Nations. So it cannot work to define its rights in, in the basically globalization and in this human rights system. And the United States is given the responsibility to define and monitor Puerto Ricans' human rights despite being one of the major violators of their human rights. Wow. So this is something very important to consider when we're going into a discussion about human rights abuses against Puerto Ricans by the United States. So keeping that in mind, regarding surveillance, for example, the U.S. Army has historically employed the insular police to solicit intelligence on Puerto Ricans for example, they have compiled files on the political beliefs of approximately 75,000 Puerto Ricans of diverse backgrounds and in diverse social sectors. Also, the U.S. federal government agencies have surveilled Puerto Ricans of very diverse backgrounds. For example, people who have been activists, who certainly have advocated for independence from the United States, I would argue that they have been the primary focus. Puerto Ricans who have traveled abroad and even members of the colonial executive bodies and colonial legal bodies and even some members of the insular police or politicians in support of Puerto Rico being a part of the United States as well as the pro-Commonwealth political party. So you see this diverse range of real distrust from the federal government to Puerto Ricans. And this is all on the basis of trying to preserve Puerto Rico as a resource for United States interests, and then also to try to suppress any possible rise in an independence movement that could form and gain a lot of popularity. We still have an independence movement here, but it's very marginal and it's understandable if you look at the history of, mm. of this suppression, right? Nice. So noting that too, you've also seen a lot of protests from Puerto Ricans against this surveillance as well. And we should also note that, for example, the FBI does not take legal responsibility for repressing Puerto Ricans. Moving on to persecution and imprisonment, almost every single decade since the United States colonized Puerto Rico, members of the independence movement have been incarcerated. And what's really important to note is that some people have been punished for their beliefs rather than their affiliations. And one law that is really important to note in this particular history is the gag law. It's been referred to as the gag law, otherwise known as law 53, which existed from 1948 to 1957. And it was really designed to suppress this independence movement. 
And so basically what it did is it criminalized people just for displaying a Puerto Rican flag or just for singing a Puerto Rican patriotic song or even just speaking or writing about independence. And so you can see that this history really can work to suppress a movement that could potentially be much stronger to date. One other thing that's important to note is the history of Vieques, which is a Puerto Rican island that the U.S. military appropriated from 1941 all the way to 2003. And what happened was the military appropriated two-thirds of this island, which clearly led to displacing the locals, and many, many locals depended on the environment for their livelihood. For example, for raising farms, for wood cutting, for fishing, and so on, right? In this <laughs> process of appropriation of two-thirds of the land, the military also controlled airways, controlled the sea, and tested weapons on the land. So you see this history of parachute drops, airstrikes, bombing from the air, and ballistic missile launches in the airways. In the sea, you saw sea maneuvers, mock amphibious invasions, torpedoes firing from submarines, missiles being launched from battleships, and even the military using the sea as a dump site. And then next, in terms of weapons on the land, you see that weapons tested had such harmful chemicals, such as napalm, Agent Orange, chaff, TNT, and depleted uranium, among others. So all of this led to extreme risks of cancer for locals that existed on the island, clearly mental and emotional impacts. And, you know, overall, it was just a very, very harmful thing that occurred and also was met with extreme protest by Puerto Ricans, not only in Vieques, but also on the main island. And what I think is quite wonderful to look at is how Puerto Ricans successfully mobilized globally to gain recognition throughout the world and allyship throughout the world, especially in, in Latin America, to finally push the United States out in 2003. And I think that this is an activist strategy that many activists should follow throughout the world. Wow. It's so great to hear you talk about this history, because I think quite a few people don't realize the extent of it. And I know that you've also researched reproductive rights in Puerto Rico. And I found your work really illuminating where you're explaining about the use of eugenics and sterilization of Puerto Rican women. And again, I think this is a history that people don't want to look at, that they want to avoid. But I think we have to revisit it in order to understand the real inequalities that Puerto Ricans have faced. Knowing that you've researched this area, I wondered if you could talk about it a little bit for us. Yes, definitely. So I think what we need to first and foremost discuss when we're talking about the history of eugenics and sterilization and testing birth control on Puerto Rican women is that this campaign started very early on in U.S. colonialism in Puerto Rico. 
where basically U.S. colonial officials and media was portraying Puerto Rican women as sexually deviant, passive, and dependent. And this is something that we can see it correlating to the U.S.'s portrayal of women of color in general, historically. Mm. It's very much in line with that. So basically, the United States used this you know, framework, which was incredibly racist and sexist and colonialist, to argue that all of the island's problems with poverty was due to overpopulation. So what happened was the United States was blaming Puerto Rican women for the state that Puerto Rico was in without acknowledging the over 500 years of colonialism that existed on the island that clearly will lead to such poverty. So even in some cases, marital sex was portrayed as dangerous for the Puerto Rican nation. And we have to really think about this. And, and again, this will be in line with the way that women of color in general have been treated in the United States. It seems as though the United States was treating poor women of color in Puerto Rico is not deserving of motherhood. And this is very much based on discouraging the reproduction of bodies of color, not only in Puerto Rico, but in, in the United States, and I would argue in other nations transnationally by the United States. So basically what happened is this campaign against Puerto Rican women was framed as based on nationalist values and citizenship, where clearly mothers were considered the producers of nationhood, both culturally and physically, because of their biological capability to give birth. However, in this case, Puerto Rican women were deemed as not appropriate candidates to do so. So basically what happened is this overpopulation rhetoric resulted in beginning as early as 1925, Puerto Rican women began being used as test subjects for contraceptives that would then later be imported to the United States. And this is a clearly harmful act that was done that clearly dehumanizes Puerto Rican women because there was no concern for their health. But their health was, in many cases, negatively impacted. And again, this is rooted in a eugenics philosophy about white supremacy and about the need to control the reproduction of people of color. And I put need in quotation marks because clearly there is not a need for that. This eventually was not determined to be, by the United States, to be effective enough. So the United States then implemented a campaign to sterilize Puerto Rican women, which basically started in the 1930s onward and has lasted for decades and decades, all the way till, for example, in 1974 to 1977, the U.S. Health Department sponsored more than 29,000 sterilizations of Puerto Ricans. But of course, who were the targets of this? over 90% were women. Mm -hmm. So you see that Puerto Rican women are, are being really targeted for this overpopulation rhetoric. And then this is something that always shocks me and always shocks people when I, I discuss this statistic. By the 1980s, Puerto Rican women endured among the highest rates of sterilization in the world. And so by the 1980s, 
about one third of Puerto Rican women of childbearing age were sterilized. Wow. I mean, I know. And so clearly this history of sterilization, of eugenics philosophy, of testing birth control has been equated by many to be uh, an act of genocide, right? To really wipe out Puerto Rican people. Wow. It's really sobering to hear that history. And it's interesting to think about this just atrocious sentiment, which is thinking that someone doesn't deserve to be a parent. To kind of take that right away from someone is really shocking. But of course, we have events like that playing out even today. You know, in some countries, for example, um, there's been enforced sterilization of trans people. And again, there seems to be this similar sentiment, which is that certain people don't deserve to keep the biological potential to produce a child. And it's just so troublesome and worrying and atrocious. And I wonder, do you think that some of these tropes are still played out in modern day Puerto Rico in the attitudes that the US has towards Puerto Rican women? Definitely. I mean, clearly this history it has, has evolved to some extent, but we are still seeing extreme systematic racism and dehumanization of Puerto Ricans. I would say that First and foremost, in terms of systematic racism, being continuing on the history that I've recently discussed is Puerto Ricans are still not given self-determination that would should be a right as a nation. So they're still being framed as dependent on the United States and still not having the right really to oversee their government in a way that could be most efficient for their domestic needs in terms of development strategies and so on. Next, I would also point to contemporary practices of dehumanizing Puerto Ricans. So while Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, they are not given equal rights to other U.S. citizens, which clearly defines them as lesser than human in the eyes of the United States. For example, Puerto Ricans have no voting members in Congress. They can't vote in presidential elections while on the island. They don't have the same constitutional protections as other U.S. citizens. And they also do not have the same access to public benefits as U.S. citizens in United States states. Finally, I would also say that If you look at Hurricane Maria, which occurred just a few years ago, it was the worst natural disaster recorded in Puerto Rican history and devastated the island where many, many people died. I mean, people argue that the the body counts are in the thousands from it, although the U.S. did not recognize this. Also, you saw that there was a lack of electricity, a lack of water for many Residents, and you see, even to this day, while I've been living here in Puerto Rico, I've only been here for a few months, and there will be some days I just don't have water, or many days where I just don't have electricity. So you see this long lasting impact. But then you also have to examine while this very severe natural disaster occurred here, the same hurricane hit Florida and Texas as well. Mm. But the response to Florida and Texas was a response that we would see commonplace 
in the United States where people tend to, and the government tends to provide services and goods in a way that comes from a place of really trying to to help mm-hmm. Florida and Texas. However, in Puerto Rico, there was, despite it being so severe here, there was a comparatively very marginal response to Puerto Ricans suffering after the natural disaster. And at the same time, you saw that, for example, Trump or media coverage portraying Puerto Ricans as lazy, independent, and not taking responsibility for the aftermath. Yeah, classic racist trope there. Classic, classic. You know, I, I mean, you're not seeing the same thing occurring in Florida and Texas. And clearly, Puerto Ricans were in extreme need at that time. And as being associated with the United States, they really should be addressed in an identical matter, if not more, considering the severity of what had occurred here. Mm -hmm. So if we were to think about how we would like things to be in Puerto Rico, could you tell us what do you think needs to change like today, next week, in the long term, in order for things to be better? Okay, so I think that clearly, as I've noted, Puerto Ricans need to be given their human right to self-determination. And it really is up to Puerto Ricans to, I mean, they're the experts of their situation, right? Even though they may have diverse opinions, they need to work or have the right to work as a democracy to determine their future. This is number one, I think, quite important, something that they're not provided under the current colonial or human rights system. Also, I would say that the educational system needs to be addressed here. In a lot of my interviews and events I've attended, a main trend that I've noticed is that Puerto Ricans are very critical of the education systems that have been here, noting that it's one of the most corrupt systems that exist here. And post-Hurricane Maria, hundreds of schools have closed in addition. So the educational system definitely needs to be addressed. Puerto Rico is in extreme debt. And you see banks trying to swoop up on this debt and really just put Puerto Rico in a place where they could never get out of this debt with high interest and so on. So I would argue that debt forgiveness needs to take place, right? And you can see that the U.S. has done that with some corporations, for example. So why not uh, entire nation suffering? So I would argue that to be the case. Personally, my work focuses on, and I think would be very, very effective, is we need to transform the international human rights system produced through the United Nations to assure that Puerto Rico can become an equal participating member in the institution instead of being really represented by the United States, which has been a primary human rights abuser of Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Also, I think that would not be enough. I think the human rights system needs to be redesigned to apply a more intersectional approach to its treaties and to its practices. So what you see currently in the human rights system is international treaties will tend to focus on one particular identity trait, such as being a woman, such as being a person of color, such as being a person with a disability, and so on. And I think that this is a quite ineffective approach, because if you look at the history of Puerto Rico that I've just briefly 
summarized some of it. We need to take into account colonial status, geographical location, gender, sexuality, race, class, and so on, all together in one particular treaty or in all treaties. I argue for a restructuring of the human rights system in general. And then finally, something that I think can really motivate this is to have activist movements practice their activism and their movements with the basis of promoting allyship. I think what we tend to see very much, and I'm not saying this is a a Puerto Rico specific thing, but activism in general is that activist movements tend to have their particular causes and then mobilize around those causes. This is effective, but I think what would be incredibly effective is if activist movements are really basing their goals on collaborating with other activist movements, finding intersections with other activist movements. That way we can really build a strong and robust movement to influence racist, sexist, and colonialist institutions. And this is something that I think Latin America has done much better than a lot of other geographical locations in terms of mobilization. And I'd really like to see this continue to be pushed forward here and and developed here. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate you really highlighting this history and bringing it to people's attention because I think it's something people should be thinking about and trying to help with as well. Thank you. And I really appreciate you drawing attention to this, what I think is quite important work. So, I mean, we really need to get the word out about this and it's not done so often. So thank you so much for inviting me to participate in this podcast.